the, the reason why we do the Advent, two reasons again, is, is first, that we're not the only ones that celebrate Jesus. That since he was born, and the shepherds and the wise men came to worship him, since that time, every, every year, people have been worshiping him um, as the Messiah, the one who would come from God. And so, so this is a tradition that we're partaking in with a lot of people around the world just saying, yes, Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, the second is that every week a new candle is lit, and every week we wait for the next candle to be lit. Right? There is this sense, as Sheila was saying, the sense of longing. Right? We long for the completion. And we're in this, this place of what theologians call already but not yet, that, that Jesus has come is the fulfillment, but we're waiting for him to come again. And that's where we stand. So that is why we do Advent. There's nothing uh, inherently sacred in candles. It's just that we're joining this, this uh, hundred, hundred, hundred of year tradition um, of people that have been celebrating Jesus and waiting for Jesus. So that's why we do this. So um, pray with me and then we'll begin. Father, I thank you so much for a time when, when so many have gathered just to hear about you. Um, and, and I thank you for the prayers that have been prayed, just that, that your word would go out. And, um, and Father, I pray that we'll, we'll hear about you, um, we'll hear about Jesus, and we'll hear truth, um, truth that we can, <laughs> we can celebrate and build our lives around and be transformed by and ultimately just be in a relationship with you through. Um, God, I, I pray that your spirit will just open up our hearts to receive it. I pray this in your name. Amen. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, uh, I wrote a story. I'm going to read it to you and then we'll get into the rest of the time. The, the title of today's sermon is Veiled in Flesh the Godhead See, which is from the hymn Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we're going to be talking about how Jesus is uh, two natures in one person. He is God, and he is man. And he is both of those together. So this is the story. Once upon a time, as all good stories start, there was a young girl named Mary who was engaged to a handsome, young, godly man named Joe. This was a very long time ago, and often when people who think they are smart talk about very long ago, they pretend that people back then felt differently than we do now. The reason why people who think they are smart talk in this way is because emotions emotions such as love or passion or fear are not rational and not repeatable, which makes it hard to quantify them in a reasonable way. That sounds smart, but... What that means is you'll hear people often talk about, well, back then it was just formal, and it wasn't. And there's a lot to prove that. Anyway, Joe was in love with Mary. When he saw her, it made it hard to talk, which was okay because it was not considered polite in their culture to look into a woman's eyes and say something flirtatious. Joe was at a loss for what to do. Mary was always on his mind, and it got to the point where Joe himself would, would find himself staring into blank spaces while he was supposed to be working in his carpenter's shop. Something had to be done, but what was even more beautiful is that Mary loved Joe also. 
And there's few things, as we know, in the world as beautiful as not only to love, but to be loved in return. So as was proper in that culture, and should be proper in ours also, is that Joe went and talked to Mary's father. And asked if he could marry Mary. Her father consented, and life was dreamlike. Then one day, Mary came to Joe with a look of fear in her eyes. She knew what she was about to say would deeply hurt the heart of the one that she loved. Mary was pregnant. How? Joe felt both like vomiting and going crazy. Joe knew how babies were made, and he knew that he was not the one that that helped in making that baby. So Joe, as we would say, needed fresh air and space. Mary got an ultrasound and saw the five little fingers and the five little toes of the growing baby boy, but instead of sharing that with the one that she loved, it was a time of loneliness for her. But still she held in her heart the promise, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But who would believe her? So that is where we begin. That is the story of Christmas. It is not easy story, right? There's a lot of, a lot of heartache in that story. Um, another one of the, the, uh, the hymns that we often sing, it says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Right? So that, that is the emotion of the moment. Hope and fear mingled together in something that that is uh, creating in this young girl a sense of awe, a sense of dread, a sense of wonder, promise. So who was this child? Ultimately, this child is the defining point for Christianity. This child Jesus, because we say that he is God and not merely a man or a prophet, is what separates us from other world religions, right? Uh, Muslims, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, um, traditional Jews, because we say Jesus is God and no one else. So we're going to look at this, this in two ways. The first is, how is this possible? How could God be born as a man? And the second is, um, why would he do that? So the first, I'm going to take you through a few points. The first is, that he is called Emmanuel, which this, this, in the verses we read this morning, and also this is quoting Isaiah, says, look, a virgin will, be, will, be, uh, will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and what will he be named? Emmanuel. So the promise in the Old Testament and the, the long expectation was that God himself would come. Right? That, that no one else could save, only God could save. So no one other than himself would come. And this is like if I invited you to my birthday party, and you came, and I had someone there instead of me that was my ambassador. How fun of a party would that be? Right? (laughs) And this is what it was like when Jesus came. Right? It was a party because it was him. Right? No substitute would do. There could be no fill-in. No one else could 
uh, fulfill this place of one who had come to save the world for sin, so we needed God, and that was the promise. Emmanuel, God himself with us. Second point, Joseph's dilemma. We see reality in this story. In most, most stories that aren't true, things are pretty. But this is not pretty. Joseph's dilemma was this. Joseph was a good man. He was a righteous man. And Mary came to him and she said, I'm pregnant. And what do you do? He said, since he was a righteous man, he decided rather than shame her publicly, he would just quietly, um, quietly remove himself from the situation. And this is interesting. And, and this is important to, to think about in, in this way, that oftentimes those smart people who, who don't like thinking about emotions prior to the, the modern era, they will also say this, that, that people before the scientific era claim that God did things because they didn't understand science. Right? And this is, this is interesting. Think about this. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, The experience of a miracle, in fact, requires two conditions. The first, we must believe in normal stability of nature, which means we must recognize that the data offered by our senses recur in regular patterns. Sounds fairly scientific, doesn't it? So, we have to be able to look at the world and say, okay, the sun rises every day, that's the way it works, we can expect it. Okay, when a man loves a woman, baby. Okay, normal reoccurrence. When a woman is pregnant without a man, miracle. Right? So the second is, secondly, we must believe in some reality beyond nature. Right, for a miracle. So, miracles are not that you don't understand science, it's that you do understand science and then an anomaly happened. Right? And that's what you see in Joseph. Joseph isn't naive. Joseph knows how babies were made. And that's not the way it worked. Right? And so he was a righteous man. So he said, and then so the angel had to come to him. And what did the angel say? He said, Isaiah, right? A virgin will conceive. And that will be Emmanuel. And that will be God with us. Right? Something crazy is going on, and God's doing it. That's what's happening. The third is Gabriel's charge. Uh, and this we find in Luke. Listen, this is really exciting. Um, in Luke it says, Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean after he told her this. Mary asked the angel, How can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Look at this and says, For nothing is impossible with God. Right? So why do we limit the incarnation oftentimes? Why, why do people say, well, it couldn't be God? Why? Because we, we try to limit God. Nothing is impossible with God. That was Gabriel's charge. And he was going easy on Mary, because a little while earlier, he had shown up to somebody named Zechariah. Right? Zechariah was an elderly man. He was a priest in the temple of God. He was righteous, and he should have known what was going on. And so the angel told Zechariah, okay, your wife, she's old, um, she's going to have a baby. And what does Zechariah say? Yeah, right, she's old. And this is what the angel Gabriel said to him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news, but now, since you didn't believe what I said to you, 
You will be silent and unable to speak until a child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled in proper time. Right? So he was gentle with Mary. That's good because she was a young girl and she probably was pretty scared. Right? But he was talking to Zachariah. He's like, why are you telling me this can't happen? I'm Gabriel. Right? And that's what goes on. We're like, I couldn't have been God as a baby. And Gabriel's like, I stand in the presence of God. Don't tell me what's going on here. I'm telling you what's going on here. Right? That's what we do. When we, we limit God, God's like, nothing is impossible with God. Just because you don't understand the ontology or the metaphysics of it or, you know, whatever, that doesn't mean that God can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't necessarily know the recipe for what happened. So there's mystery to it. Um, what does it look like for God to be joined with man? We know what that looks like because we see Jesus. Do we know how God did it? We don't. Because God did it, but nothing's impossible with him. So how do we understand this? We understand God. And this will begin to do here. But I don't want us to be like little children. This is the example that came to my mind. Little children who have this round, circular block trying to shove it in a square fitting, you know, <laughs> like kids try to do. It's not that. God is the creator, right? God can do anything. So we find in Colossians 2.9, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. That's what it says in Colossians 2.9. This, is, this means no splicing, no Frankenstein God, no God of Greek mythology, right? Gods of Greek mythology, they were man, Right? They had nothing about deity to them. They were given over to human passions, human desires, and, and the like. So what is deity? The deity it is God who speaks and acts when Jesus speaks and acts. So when we hear Jesus speak, we hear God speak. Everything exists through him, and yet he condescended to be in relationship with us. Jesus is still royalty, but he took up a shovel to do the work for himself. That's what we see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Is it hard for you to see the King of Kings do the dirty work? That's what he's doing, right? What no one else could do. Sin was deadly, and he was the only one that could bring healing. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of who? The glory of the one and only. And just like I mentioned, some of our limitations have been, um, really we receive a lot from, um, from the Greeks in way of our philosophy. Right? We see, receive law from the Romans, we receive morality from the Hebrews, we receive philosophy from the Greeks, that's what they say. And so all, oftentimes our idea of humanity... And, and then our idea of what God can do comes from the Greeks. And so oftentimes when we hear God became man, we just think of Achilles, right? Or, or someone else like that. And then when we think of humanity, we think of this, this um, Greek idea of dualism. And, and I don't want this to go over your heads. What this means is we think spirit good, body bad. And so that's why we think, Jesus, you can't do this. Because you're good and, and bodies are bad, 
right? And God didn't create that distinction. God, God wasn't like, I'm creating an awesome thing and a bad thing. That's not what happened when he created. There isn't that distinction for him. Um, so we can't fall victim to that. When it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen him, and when we see him, we see the glory of the one and only. It looks different. It looks different because it's in a, a body. And bodies are subject to a lot of things, right? And God humbled himself to be subject to a lot of things. Why? So he could relate with us in every way and become our Savior. Philippians 2.9 talks more about this. It says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God something to cling to, something to hold. Um, NASB says something to be grasped, like he's constantly trying to grab hold of something. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And what we get from this, this is interesting, is God didn't have identity issues. And I think, I think that's why oftentimes we don't allow God to do something like the incarnation. is because we have identity issues and we're constantly trying to grasp at things. Like, I'm trying to grasp at what it means to be holy. I'm trying to grasp at a better life. <laughs> Jesus knew he was God and didn't consider it something that he had to hold. He just was it. Right? It wasn't the Jesus that was like on earth going like, maybe I'm God, maybe I'm not. He was God and he knew it. He didn't have identity issues. He didn't consider it something that he had to hold on to. He was God. But he gave up his divine privilege and what that means is God's divine privilege is to be worshipped. Forever, And so he came to a place where he wasn't worshipped. Where he came and he could get taken advantage of. And get mocked and spit on. And instead of going to the, the you know, Victorian suite in the hotel, he had to go to the barn out back to get born. Right? So he gave up the divine privileges of royalty of being God. Because he didn't consider it something he had to hold on to. But it was the reality of his, his being, who he was. I, you know, to think of this, we were all very familiar with uh, the prince and the pauper, right? And you can see the distinction there, right? The prince, right, had, had his divine privileges. And if he was in the castle, he got everything. Once the prince left the castle, he was just a pauper, right? And that's what happened. When Jesus came, he didn't come in his regalia and, and, and everything that, you know, everyone came and bowed down to him when he was born. He didn't. He can relate with us in every single way. Because he was, he was man in every single way. So that is, that is how God could become. Yes? Thank you, Erica. So we're just going to swing into the next point, which is, why then would God be born as a man? If, if this is it. Right? If, if he is God, and, um, and he is everlasting royalty, 
Uh, power beyond compare. Why would he do that? I think that's where we have to go next. So why, why God would you? Um, the first is the atonement and what that means for us. Jared Packer wrote, The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary, and we do not understand it until we see it in context. Right? So the, the significance of the cradle is found in the cross. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, it says, You know the generosity of the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you would become rich. And that, that is why God would, right? Because you were in a place of poverty, and by joining you, then he could return you to him. This is, this is interesting, and often, oftentimes, um, and, and what happens in a lot of other religions, the question is, well, why, why couldn't he send the highest of all created beings, or an angel, to do it? That's usually what he's, or, or just be a prophet, right? Why could that not be who Jesus is? And three, three quick um, responses to that, just taken from this verse, the first is that's not generosity. Right? <laughs> if, if you are in need and I take, say you need a car, and I go, okay, well my roommate has a car, and so I'm going to take Nate car, Nate's car and give that to you. Is that generosity? No. <laughs> right? <laughs> it wouldn't be generosity for God just to be like, well, I'm just going to give that. Right? A minion or something. No, that's not generosity. That's not praiseworthy if I steal Nate's car and give it to you. Maybe for him if he agrees to it. Second, this does not glorify him. God is not glorified by just creating another thing to take care of his problem. That doesn't glorify him. It just shows that he's capable. Right? So it doesn't glorify him. But, but the, cro- the cradle and the cross show God's glory in a more profound way than, than anything else. Is he's declaring all his promises that are leading up to the way he would rescue mankind. Right? And that we worship him now for that. That really does call glory to himself. And the third is, that is no real poverty. Right? For God to become flesh and dwell among us is to become poor. Right? And he experienced that. Therefore, Hebrews 4, we have a high priest that can relate with us in every single way. Right? That you have one in Jesus Christ too. And everything, no matter what you experience, you can come to him and be like, God, this is what I'm experiencing. He's like, I, I do know. I know. That's what you're going through. The second is this. Consider the compassion of God. Consider it in this way. All the parables Jesus told. It says, There is a father who cares for his lost son. The king who does the same for his unsolved debtors. The Samaritan who takes pity on the one who fell among robbers. And his thoroughgoing acts of compassion towards them. Right? So in, we, in all these 
examples and all the parables of Jesus, he's constantly telling of someone who is generous and able and wealthy, who is then showing compassion on someone who just doesn't deserve it. And that is God, right? So when Jesus is telling these parables, he's not like, well, I want you guys to do this, but then I'm just safe. But what he's saying in those parables is what he's actually doing in the present. Does that make sense? So when he's telling them of the father who loved a son who ran away, right? What he's telling them is in real time being fulfilled. Right? So he's not just saying, well, there once was this father. But but when he's saying that, he is welcoming home those who are lost. Right? When it is the wealthy landowner who's forgiving a debt that could never be paid off. That is him. Right? So when you see compassion in the stories that Jesus is telling, right, and, and you're like, I admire that. I just don't see that anywhere. Jesus himself is doing all that in present time. Right? So whatever you admire about Jesus that is in his, in his words, that is who he is. And so you see his compassion. And that's why he would do it, because God is compassionate and gracious and, and, and slow to anger and abounding in love. That's who God is. And that's why he would do it. Because that is the character and nature of God, and he loves. The third is, um, and this is awesome. I, I was thinking of this the other night. I was... Oftentimes, days are really busy, and so it's just the last hours before I go to bed that I can begin working on sermons throughout the week. And so I was thinking of, and it kind of made me laugh, how when we have authority of any kind, and, and typically this is, this is um, the government in, in America, where we think they should take care of everything, right? And so it could be as silly as something like, like somebody has to wait too long at a drive-thru, and, and they'll be like, oh, if only like the small business taxes were cut, then we could have more, you know? And you're like, and then the person behind them is like, yeah. Why? Because the government should fix everything, right? <laughs> and politicians then are famous for promising things they can't come through with, right? Like, <laughs> I wrote an example. Oh, like they would say, I'm going to solve the problem of world hunger, reform public schools, because for some reason my kids didn't turn out right, and make sure that you never have to pay any money when you go to the doctors. Right? And you're like, yes, I'll vote. Right? And so we do, we pretend like these people can solve something. Right? Solve all these problems in however long we give them to do it. Right? Two years, four years. So we use them ultimately as a scapegoat. But Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says this, For unto us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and his government will have no end, and his peace will have no end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So why would he do it? Because he can fulfill his promises. Right? <laughs> he won't expect the government to. He'll, he will carry the government on his shoulders. Isn't that amazing? Right? 
And what would we call this baby? This baby with five fingers and five toads that was born in a manger. We will call him everlasting God. Right? Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. Right? This baby, because from his birth, he was fully God and fully man. Two natures in one, capable of carrying the government on his shoulders. Why? Because, because that's where you put your confidence. You put your confidence in this or that or this or that. And you know what he's doing? He's just like, all of this is insufficient. I'm just going to carry it. And that's what he does. Why would he do it? Because he's the only one that's capable of doing it. Another created being isn't capable of doing it. He alone, God alone, is capable to carry the world on his shoulders. And so we find ourselves oftentimes in this place of John 14, Philip. And I'll, I'll, we'll wrap up here. Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. So we come to Jesus in the manger and we say, okay, well just, that's cool, I like that, that's a nice trick. But, but now show me, show me your real power and I'll be satisfied. This is what Jesus says, he says, Jesus replied, I have, been, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so to look again at this baby in the manger, right? Who is the fulfillment of the promises of God. And what he is asking us to do is to trust him. So our response as we, as we think of these two points of how how is it possible? How, how is it possible that, that he could be God? And we hear Angel Gabriel just let you have it, right? God can do anything he wants, right? Or we, we think, why would he do that? Okay, I understand that, but, but why would he? I mean, he's so beautiful, he's so safe, he's so in heaven. Why would he do that? Because... <laughs> The one we love in all the stories of Jesus who had compassion and ran to his son, that is God, right? And he's compassionate. And he's the only one, as we find in the end, who can actually take care of the problems and carry the world on his shoulders. And so he did that. And so I invite you guys, as, uh, you know, as we go on, as we celebrate Christmas, as we sing songs now, um, wherever you are, to worship Jesus as God who carries the governments on his shoulders. And put your trust in him because ultimately what he's offering you through this is a relationship with him. That we could be righteous in a way and we we could pray to him, we can hang out with him, we can love him. Um... He wants to be involved in your life. He allows us to be involved in his life. And that is the story of Christmas. So pray with me and then we'll sing somewhere. Father, I know this is all very quick and 
And even if we begin to get it now, we're just beginning to worship. Um, like, like Amazing Grace says, when we've been there 10,000 years, we've known days to sing Jesus' praise than when we first began. And I think after that 10,000 years, we'll still be awed by what he would do for us, that we could be included in that, that amazing privilege of being in relationship eternally with him. Um, and I, so I pray that, Father, for all of us, we'll begin, whether it's for the first time or with more passion today, um, to worship Jesus as God and just to love him and know how deeply we're loved. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.